on the prequel to the 29th episode. We're learning about growing up, previewing Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, and taking our Patronus quiz on Pottermore. Oh, welcome back to the prequel to the 29th episode of This Film is Lit. If we sound a little bit different, we're using different mics, different equipment, uh, so it should sound potentially a little better. It's more expensive equipment. Yeah. Uh, we won't always be able to use this, but most of the time from now on out, I think we'll be able <laughs> we'll be on this better equipment. So yeah, uh, it should sound hopefully uh, a little nicer, a little cleaner, and just all around better. But like I said, we're doing a few things on this episode. It's the prequel to the Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban episode. We're learning things with this film is lit, and what we're learning about is growing up. Uh, we've done coming of age stories. This yeah. is a little different. This is specifically related to Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban and the ways they explore the the things the movie does specifically. Mm-hmm. The both the book and the movie, but specifically, I'm talking about the movie. Things the movie does to sort of explore the concept of growing up, right? And and get across to the audience the themes visually and uh, story wise. And we've we've mentioned before on here in our Harry Potter series that the books grow up along with the reader. With the readers, yeah. They start out very much as children's books, and then by the time you hit uh, about book four-ish. Yeah, um, three to four. Yeah. Three to four, yeah. they start to foray more into the young adult yeah. genre. Four's the hard one, three's like the warm-up. Yeah, three is a little bit of a warm-up as far as the books go. And then with book four, we really start getting into like heavier, deeper, yeah. um, thematic yeah. issues. But in, in three, movie-wise, visually, uh, they made a lot of changes, mm-hmm. uh, which we'll get into why and, and what, they were, what they changed uh, when we get into the actual learning segment. But they made a lot of changes that uh, in three, that kind of... Unlike the book did it a little bit uh, mm-hmm. thematically, because obviously there's not the visual elements of the book. Right. But thematically and story-wise, the book did it a little bit, but the movie really made a stark change from the first two. Yes. Into the third one. Yes, definitely. Um, and we'll talk about why that is uh, when we get into our segment. So let's let's do it. Uh, let's learn about growing up in Harry Potter. No matter what anybody tells you, words and ideas can change the world. So we're going to talk about growing up in Harry Potter and explicitly or specifically we're talking about the movie. Um, again, a lot of these concepts, specific, uh, may, uh, we're going to talk about visual things they changed mm-hmm. in the movie um, to sort of get across that idea of, uh, of the, the characters growing up. Um, and we're also going to talk about thematic elements. The thematic elements are shared both in the book and the movie, the yes. visual elements kind of specific to the movie. Uh, this isn't an exhaustive list. This is just sort of I kind of remembered because we haven't watched the movie again yet so i'm just kind of i was going back on my memory i watched some of the special features and saw uh curan talk about it a little bit and what Mm -hmm. he wanted to do but again it's not an exhaustive list it's just sort of a a primer primer (laughs) whatever the right word is uh so this movie was directed uh harry potter and person of azkaban was directed by alfonso curan curan I think it's Quran. And a departure from the first two films. Yes, which we'll talk about in the movie fun facts here mm-hmm. in the next segment, why that happened. Um, but yeah, the first two films were directed by Chris Columbus, uh, more of a kids movie director. Yes. Um, now, Alfonso Cuaron had done one, we'll, and we'll talk about that later. He had done a kids <laughs> movie, but his most recent movie before this was Etu Mami Tambien. I believe I pronounced it. Mama Tambien. I believe I pronounced that correct. Um, and that is a 
a coming-of-age road trip movie where two teenage boys have lots of sex with an older woman. It's... <laughs> he, he was a little confused at why they wanted him for this film, but... <laughs> Uh, he was in one of the interviews I saw. He was like, "The last movie I did was like a sexual coming of age, mm-hmm. like art house flick, basically." And he's like, "And then they're like, you want to do Harry Potter?'" And he was like, "All right." <laughs> <laughs> um, but we're going to talk about some of the things he brought to the table visually. And, and again, this is just not—it's not only him. He's the director, but it's mostly his vision. Mm-hmm. You know, primarily his vision combined with the art, uh, all of the art people, and and the. Uh, director of photography and all that stuff but so here are some of the visual choices and changes that they made in the third movie that i think sort of represent and and get across the the theme of growing up one the color palette is very different uh Mm -hmm. in this film and and it kind of sticks with it going forward the first two movies are very bright they're very colorful they're very cheery uh from three on the color palette becomes much more muted um, so there's a lot and it's a lot more blues and greens and purples and dark colors. Mm-hmm. So you, you have a lot more uh, cool. Sorry, not dark colors, cool, color, cool and dark, but cool colors, blues, greens, that sort of thing. Muted tones. It's not as saturated. And what saturated means, if you're not aware, is basically is like it's like if you have a volume knob, mm-hmm. but for color, like how colorful something is. So something I'm thinking of specifically from the first movie that. Now, I don't know if I'm using this right. Um, that seemed to me like it was probably very saturated was the scene where um, where they first go on the broomsticks. Yes. And they're like outside and the yes. sky is like bright, bright blue, blue and, the and, and the grass is bright, bright green. green. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and all of their all of their uh, and I, I don't know, I would have to look into this, but I wouldn't be surprised uh, like all of their. uh their scarves and stuff, the house colors are all very bright reds and golds, yeah. bright blues and greens. And, you know, each of the house colors, I ha- I would imagine if you compared, if you took one of the scarves or ties from movie three onward and compared it to one of the scarves or ties from movie one, mm-hmm. it's like in the first movie, it's like a bright red and a bright gold for the Gryffindor colors. And in the third, from the third on, it's like a maroon and like a, a darker gold. Yeah, like, like a dark gold. Yeah. yeah. And that's sort of like the the idea is it's it's more muted. It's less saturated. It's less bright. Um, and part of this that this gets across when you're doing it, it, filmmaking, when you do that, when you dial back the saturation and the color in the world is it's. It sort of represents you seeing the world as it is as you get older, as opposed mm-hmm. to how you want it to be. There's a sort of a naivety, naivete, um, to seeing the world very colorful and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, what's the the phrase? Looking on it with, you know. Rose-colored yes, glasses? Yes, essentially, yeah. Looking at the world through rose-colored glasses, uh-huh. everything's very colorful. Obviously, it's rose-colored, but <laughs> um, that's kind of the idea when it's more saturated. So dialing that back, it's not as bright, it's not as shiny as we imagine it when we're younger. Mm-hmm. You're starting to get older and see it how it really is, which is a little more gray, a little more right. muted. And and it also represents the sort of, uh, it kind of brings in uh, the, the themes of morality, where things are a little more gray Obviously, once we get way more down the line, the things that Dumbledore does mm-hmm. and his whole arc throughout the story is a little more gray than yes. it initially seems. Um, so that's kind of the thing. You're muting the colors and you're kind of muddying everything. And that's it's representative of how we see the world as mm-hmm. we get older. So that's one of the first things. 
uh, similar is that uh, the set design wise, everything's a lot more one. They use a lot more real sets. Uh, Mm -hmm. They shot a lot of the first two movies in studios. Obviously, there's some of it was on location, but a lot of it was in the studios where they built sets. A lot of this movie is uh, in real locations where they went and they built stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, They went up to Scotland and filmed a lot of it up in Scotland where they built you know, Hagrid's hut and all Hagrid's hut and all that stuff where mm-hmm. I think is in the first two movies, like Hagrid's hut was on like a soundstage probably. Yeah. Um, I don't know that about that example specifically, but that is one of the things I read is that a lot of it was on the studio before. Um, and, and, and part of that is everything looks a lot more real, a lot grimier and dirtier and more lived in. Mm-hmm. It's sort of how I feel. <laughs> this is getting into a different series, but when you look at Lord of the Rings versus the Hobbit, uh, huh. The Lord of the Rings movies look much more lived in yes. and feel much more real. Yes. Or is it the, uh, or even to compare it to a different book series, The Chronicles of Narnia. Yeah, and we talked about that. We talked that about that in, in that the Chronicles episode. of Narnia episode where the Chronicles of Narnia, the world feels a, a lot newer and cleaner and it just yeah. doesn't feel it feels as real. really, really shiny. Yes. Um, and in this, in, in Prisoner of Azkaban, he moved away from that and it's more grimy, it's more lived in, it feels more like a real world mm-hmm. uh, and that again is to kind of ground it and bring a gravitas and reality to the setting that this story is taking place in another thing uh there's more low-key lighting and what low-key lighting is there's two types of lighting i mean <laughs> essentially there's high key lighting and low key lighting high key lighting is bright even light mm-hmm where there's not a lot of shadow, you can see everything really well. That's kind of also ties into the color palette. Mm-hmm. That's part of it is that um, it's more colorful usually in high key lighting, but low key lighting. Uh, the most like the peak example of low key lighting is like film noir, mm-hmm. where it's like super harsh and shadowy, and you know, like right, half like, the characters yeah, are in shadow, but half of everybody's face is in a shadow. Right. Then that's, that that is a that's like. The far end of uh-huh. low-key lighting. But, you know, there's a spectrum from that to where everything's in the sunlight and blown out. Or not blown out, but, you know, very brightly lit. And you can see every detail and everything. And there's not shadows anywhere other than, like, kind of minimal. Um, and when you switch to low-key matting it's or low-key lighting, it's more dramatic. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it uses darker colors or the colors appear darker when you do that because there's not as much light on them. As we like kind of how I mentioned earlier, Um, and it's also there's more pools of light and dark and that sort of thematically gets back to this world becoming just darker in general. Yes. As you grow up. Yes. And so, again, (laughs) it's you're starting to see the darkness literally as the darkness creeps into the storyline. You're seeing it literally in the shadows Mm -hmm. uh, cinema in the cinematography. So interesting. Yeah. All right, and last thing visually, and this is a mixture of visually and, and um, otherwise, but it's not in the book, so we're going to talk about it here because it's a, it's a movie-specific thing like the rest of these are. Kiran uh, made a specific de- decision that he wanted the characters... Uh, they still wear the robes throughout the movie. They're mm-hmm. Hogwarts robes, but they start doing different things with them, and they wear them less. Yes. There's lots of scenes where they're not wearing their robes, where right. they're on, grounds, on the grounds and stuff, but they're just like in... Muggle clothing, essentially. And whereas in the first two, they're almost always almost wearing their robes. Exclusively in robes. Yeah. Or uniforms. Uniforms. Um, but there's lots of moments in this where they aren't in that. 
But there's also a lot of moments where they are is somewhat in their uniforms, but they he came to all of them. And then this beyond just the, the main three people, he went to the whole cast and said, we're going to have your robes. These are your uniforms, but I want you to wear them how you want to wear them. Mm-hmm. If you want to not wear your tie, if you want to wear your tie loose, if you want to not wear your robe and roll your sleeves, you know, or if yeah. you want to have your shirt untucked, however you want to do it, wear, you know, wear your uniform and your robes how you want to. And the main reason he said he wanted to do this was to bring sort of a naturalism to the the kids' performance so they were really comfortable. Mm-hmm. And they felt, you know, when they're if they're allowed to do what they want with their uniform, he felt they would be comfortable and then they would give a more natural performance. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that would contrast against the magic and make the magical elements even more hmm. fantastical if the kids are giving a very grounded, natural performance. Mm-hmm. And then there's all this magical stuff going on. But I think the more importantly, thematically for us, is that it allows them individualism. Yeah. As you start to grow up, you start to express yourself uh, and you start to come into your own as a person. Right. Yeah, I was I was just thinking that that makes a lot of sense because they're supposed to be 13. They're 13. That is and the, this, yeah, this is this like is, the transition. Yes. <laughs> and that really like thinking back, it's around that age when you start to kind of express yourself more through your clothes yeah. or your hair, yeah. or maybe you push back a little bit of an, again, to, Against, to your parents' rules yeah. about what you can or and the can't wear. Or yeah. yes, that sort of thing. And so he, allowing them to do that uh, is a very natural extension of that passagehood from child, or that passageway from childhood to adulthood. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I think it works really well. I remember initially when i first saw this movie not liking that they like weren't wearing their robes a lot or that they it just looked weird to me mm-hmm. because as a book reader i was like they just like, wear their robes they're just at school they wear their robes <laughs> but uh, as i thought on it now listening to listening to kiran explain it, it it made a lot of sense and i was like yeah it's an, that's an interesting idea and uh i think it works well to sort of add on to that yeah the theme of growing up and i, I think it worked well in the movie's favors favor too, like as a series, because as they got older, I think it would have looked stranger and stranger they to were have still them always just in their buttoned up robes. Yeah. With their, yeah, I agree. I agree. So those are the visual elements that uh, three. Some of the new visual elements that three really brings to the table uh, in a way that we didn't see in the first two movies. And now we're going to talk about some of the thematic elements, and these are. Uh, Shared with the shared book. with the book where there, these are things that happen both in the movie and the book. So mm-hmm. we can kind of both talk about it a little more. All right. So the first thematic thing that is introduced in uh, Prisoner of Azkaban, it's two things, but it's it's two creatures uh, we're going to talk about. And that is Bogarts, or mm-hmm. as I pronounced it when I read the book, Bogarts. Yeah. <laughs> when I read it, they were Bogarts. And then I saw the movie and they're like Bogarts. And I'm like, all right. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Fine. If you say so. Um uh, Boggarts and Dementors. Dementors. Um, and those kind of both represent a similar but slightly different thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Boggarts um, uh, represent fear, basically. Yes. They are fear incarnate. Yeah, literally, quite literally a manifestation of, of fear. fear yeah. And uh, similarly, Dementors are a physical, magical manifestation of misery slash dread slash mm-hmm. also fear to some extent. Yeah. But... More specifically, like misery. But that's why they affect Harry so much is because he has these horrible things in his right, past. He has legitimate trauma. He has legitimate trauma. Past. Yeah. And they, they also represent trauma to some extent because yeah. they affect people who have been through more trauma or have experienced more traumatic stuff in their lives. They affect them worse. 
Uh, so these are these are two creatures that are sort of physical manifestations of these concepts. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so those are introduced in this one. And over the course of the book, Harry learns how to deal with both of them. Mm-hmm. And that is this is your representation of your theme of coming to terms with f- dealing with fear and dealing with dread, dealing with misery, dealing with sadness. Um, and that's not something we've really dealt with in the right. first two books to it really to this a little bit, but not to the same extent, even close as, as we do here in three. And so that's 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 the first thing. Yeah. Uh, the, the Boggart and the Dementor as representations of these sort of these emotions that you start to deal with when you start getting older. When yeah. You're, when you transition out of that ch- that doughy eyed childhood. Because yeah. in, in the first two books and movies, scary things do happen. Oh, yeah. And we do, you know, we get a couple mentions that Harry felt afraid or what have you, but the narrative doesn't really acknowledge that. We no. don't ever see him deal with it. He doesn't dwell on it ever. And yeah. He doesn't really deal with it. And and I think then now starting in this third installment, we start to see the consequences of that. Yeah. yeah. It really starts to hit him and, it, and he has to confront it and yeah. has to deal with it. All right, next thing, next thematic element is divination. And it's funny, you wouldn't think, when I thought of this and I was thinking about this the other day, it kind of came to me, I was like, oh, I'd never really thought about it this way, but it makes a lot of sense, and I'll see if you agree. Um, Divination and and it coming in in their third year, it's a class you can start, because in their third year, just to wrap or round this out for anybody who's not aware, in the third year, they can start choosing their classes. Right, basically electives. Electives, essentially. Um, And... Two of the cla- the two classes Harry and Ron both pick are uh, care of magical creatures mm-hmm. and divination, um, and divination is fortune telling essentially. Yeah, you know it's 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 tea leaves and tarot cards and crystal balls and all of that stuff. It's telling the future. And I think maybe I'm misremembering, but don't they say they took it because it would be like an easy A? Basically, they thought it would be easy. I yeah. think. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, I mean, Harry. T- I don't know if that's why they take it. Harry takes it because. Ron takes it. Yeah. Harry just takes the same class as Ron yeah. does because he can't figure out what he wants to take. So, um, but what divination really represents, uh, ultimately in this, in this book is dealing with the future and thinking about the future. Mm-hmm. When you're a kid, you don't, you live, you're always living in the present. Right. I mean, you might think as far ahead as like Christmas. Right. But, but even then you don't really, you don't, dwell on it you're just like wow i'm excited for christmas like yeah. but you don't think about it and and usually it's things you're excited about you don't really dwell on bad things in the future potentially bad things in the future mm-hmm. um but that's something as we start to grow up you start to think more about your future and and what's coming and dealing with you know uh worrying about the future and what mm-hmm. what's what's going to pass uh, and divination sort of represents that. I mean, explicitly in this because Harry is very explicitly told your future, you're going to die. Yeah. Now, it, we, you know, they're sort of it's sort of played off um, because Trelawney is not the world's most reliable <laughs> uh, fortune teller. But he's literally given, you know, the worst possible mm-hmm. um prognosis for his future and he has to sort of come to terms with that and deal with it and decide how he wants to face that uh and so that that's that's a big part of, that's a big theme is yeah the future dealing with the future and i mean we even get to the point where time travel eventually comes in and 
yeah. you know, rectifying mistakes and that sort of thing. Uh, but yeah, just overall, the idea of looking forward to the future and and contemplating and worrying and and that sort of thing, which isn't something kids do, but is something yeah. you start doing as you get older. Right, so. and of course there are exceptions to every rule, right. but by and large, it's something you do as an adult yeah. more so than as a kid. Yeah. Uh, and as I mentioned, we're going to get into jumping onto that. Like I said, time travel mm-hmm. with the time turner. Uh, you basically you're dealing with regretting your past decisions yeah. uh, and and wishing you could change them. And this is something again that kids don't do as much, just yeah. because you're not you know you're not developed enough to really think about it in that way, and you don't kind of perceive time in the same way as we do as adults. Um, but the time turner literally gives them the opportunity to go and fix things yeah. and change their yeah. past actions and mistakes they made and things they wish they had done differently or better. Um, and that's a big thing that we all deal with as adults. Like, I wish I would have done this. I wish I would have done that. So yeah, it's an, it's another big thing. And finally, uh, we get our first major death. Now it's not, again, the time Turner rectifies this. Yeah. Um, but we do get, it, it does happen and our characters have to deal with it to some extent. And I'm speaking of Buckbeak, and it's not a major character. It's not, mm-hmm. you know, a person. It's an animal. It's, um, but it is a character we care about. Mm-hmm. Is a character that our 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 characters care about, uh, especially in its relationship to Hagrid and how much he cares about Buckbeak. Um, and up till this point, nobody has died. Yeah. In, in yeah. the first two books, I mean, just counting the past when you know Harry's parents and stuff, obviously, but no characters have died. Up until this book. And then Buckbeak does die. Well, in the movie, he doesn't technically because of the loop. I think in the book, it's more explicit that he does. Well, it's it's not. I, did, I forgot about this. And in the movie, we don't actually see him die. Mm-hmm. And the implication in the movie is that they saved him because there's a, the loop created where they always saved him. Yeah. But we it sounds like he died. And the version of our characters who haven't gone backwards yet think he died. So essentially, as far as they're concerned, the character died, the mm-hmm. Buckbeak died. He may not have actually, but our characters think he did. So they have to kind of come to terms with that and deal with that and decide what they're going to do about that. Um, and it's not a major thing. It gets much more heavy and involved going forward, especially from right. four onward. Yes. Uh, whereas main characters and major characters do start to actually die. Um, but this is sort of the introduction to it of, of characters dying yeah. and dealing with yeah. and, death. And then- the fact that his death basically kind of gets like retconned. Yeah, basically. Essentially, yeah. Um, it makes it a really interesting like foray into the shallow end. Yeah, yeah. It's dipping your toe in the yeah. shallow end of of uh, dealing with that, dealing with death, and dealing with and and, and uh, you, I think a side bar of that is that around the time you're 13 very often is the time you might lose your first pet or something yeah if you had a dog when you were five or whatever you know or your parents had a dog when you were growing up that's in the ballpark of the area where some one of your pets might die Mm -hmm. and dealing with that and that is a more direct corollary to buckbeak dying Mm -hmm. as an animal but they care about but and it's something that you know a reader in their that 12 to 13 range would potentially be experiencing and yeah definitely identify with so those are the thematic elements that uh, Prisoner of Azkaban starts to introduce. Um, there definitely are more. Uh, it's not like I said; it's not an exhaust exhaustive list, but those are some of the things that we thought about uh, as we were thinking on the movie and the book, and sort of preparing the growing up segment. So let's move on 
2. And then Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban preview. Sirius Black has escaped from Azkaban prison. He's a murderer. Sirius Black is the reason the Potters are dead. And now he wants to finish what he started. I want you to swear to me you won't go looking for Black. Why would I go looking for someone who wants to kill me? Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, published in the UK in July of 1999 and in the US in September of 1999. This is the last book in the series to be released at separate times in the two countries. Oh, okay. So yeah. it was the first three that did it. Yeah. Yeah, I remember we were talking about that. Because mm-hmm. we definitely remembered later that that wasn't the case. They no, came out at the same I time. definitely not. Um, the popularity of the series really ramped up. Um pre-publication of book four what year did this come out 2004 2003 2002 what year did you say 1999 oh you're thinking of the movie yeah the movie came movie out came later. out in 2004 it was that okay it's funny because i think only four was out only book four was out at the time that this movie came out mm-hmm. no 99 was the 98 was the first book didn't we just talk about that? Wasn't 98 the year the first book came out? I can double check it, but... Because that seems super late, or that seems super early. I could have swore we checked, and, and 98 was the year the first book came out. And like 99 in America. The first book came out in... It is 1999. Hmm. Published in 1999. Right. Never mind. I stand corrected. I could have swore that... When did the first one come out? 97? Well, she put those first three out really fast. Yeah, then... she did. Okay, okay. She put the first three out really fast, and then did you don't remember that there was a yeah. painstaking wait. I do for remember book that four. because that's when I caught up. Yeah, was I remember I read the first three after they all came out. Yes, and then as did I. I think that, and then from four onward was where I think I was yeah, caught up. I was and waiting on pins them, and needles yeah, for each release. reading them as they came out. Yeah. Basically, so Rowling found the book easy to write, unlike Chamber of Secrets as we learned in that prequel. Uh, She finished it just a year after she began writing it. Uh, She started to write Prisoner of Azkaban the day after she finished The Chamber of Secrets. Could keep that role going. I guess. You know, once you're on it. She said, "The best. it was the best writing experience I ever had. I was in a very comfortable place. Immediate financial worries were over, and press attention wasn't yet by any means excessive. Yeah. And and I, it seemed to me like she had a unique vision for this one, mm-hmm. as we talked about, whereas the second one at times mirrors the first one in sort of structure yeah. in the mystery of it. This one definitely goes a different direction. Yeah. It, it's got a lot of similarities well, yeah, to the they, first yeah. two, but it, it is pretty different. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's definitely unique in a way that that the first two aren't. And then they, they they get more unique as it goes, where each one stands out more from the previous one, yeah. I think, like yeah. where each of them deviates structurally more. Uh, but yeah, this one even more so than the first two from each other. So. Mm-hmm. Prisoner of Azkaban sold more than 86,000 copies in the UK within three days of publication, which made it the fastest-selling fastest British book of the time. Critical reception was mostly positive. 
Uh, Gregory Maguire, who you might recognize as the author of Wicked, wrote a review in the New York Times and said, In terms of plot, the books do nothing new, but they do it brilliantly. So far, so good. Uh, Kirkus didn't give it a starred review, but they did say that the book would leave you hungry for the four additional Harry books that J.K. Rowling has, is working on. Mm -hmm. And it did. Yeah. The book won the 1999 Whitbread Children's Book Award, the Bram Stoker Award, and the 2000 Locus Award for Best Fantasy Novel. And it was also shortlisted for the Hugo Award, but it didn't get it. Yeah. But it was on the shortlist. Yeah. That's impressive. This isn't really a book fact. This is a me fact. I could be misremembering this. But I'm pretty sure the first time around I read this before I read Chamber of Secrets. That's weird. I really I really think I did. I'm pretty sure it was gifted to me by someone who knew that I liked Harry Potter but mm -hmm. didn't realize that, that this was, was book second, three. Yeah. And I didn't have book two yet. Gotcha. But well, I still read it. Yeah, and you know, that's not... There's definitely things where you would have been like, wait, what are they talking about? Like, because yeah. there's elements, there's moments where they talk about what happened the year before, but there's not, you could read it yeah. and, and like, you know what I yeah. mean? Like the plot isn't, it's not like from like book five to six, like where if you read six and hadn't read five, you'd be like, yeah, you'd be what? like, what the heck is going on? What is this? What is this about a locket? Like, yeah, you'd be <laughs> very confused, but yeah, this one doesn't yeah, have the, that those same. First three books function much better as standalone yeah. books yeah. than the others in the series because once do. the story really starts getting going with voldemort and his whole plan is yeah. when it yeah yes. it starts they start not being independent as much that and at least the first three have that nice little recap oh yeah and again we noticed that in this one every... three also has the recap <laughs> for new readers that's all the book facts cool. I have. Cool. Let's talk about some movie facts. Filthy little mudblood. Foul, loathsome, evil little cockroach. Oh, that felt good. All right. So as we mentioned, uh, this is the first movie not directed by Chris Columbus in mm -hmm. the series. Uh, the reason for that is that he was slated to film it or to be the director, but he decided he didn't want to return to Helm III because he hadn't seen his own kids <laughs> in about uh two and a half years oh so well that's sad well it's it a specific quote is that he hadn't seen his kids he hadn't been to dinner with his kids during the week in two and a half years oh, i'm sure he's seen that's them. a little less sad i'm sure he saw them occasionally but he, that he hadn't been like home for dinner uh. on like a weeknight in almost three years and he was like i can't keep doing mm. this um, so a couple other people were approached to direct uh, the most interesting one to me. Well, two, two of the most interesting ones. One, M. Night Shyamalan. I think we might have mentioned this before. I can't remember. Or was that a different movie that he was that we were talking about that he was approached for? I can't remember. I remember. Uh, he was considered to direct, but he turned it down because he was working on The Village. So apparently they oh. offered him the job, <laughs> which oof. that would have been interesting. This is post M. Night Shyamalan being good. Now, his. <laughs> He's had a resurgence recently. I haven't seen any of them, but apparently his last few films are pretty good. But uh, his biggest problem isn't really his direction. It's his writing a lot of the times. Yeah. Like he writes all his movies. And whereas mm. this one, he'd just be adapting it. It's like it might have worked a little better. Um, I, I, I like some of Shyamalan stuff and don't like some of the other stuff. So the other one who was approached uh, and offered the job was Guillermo del Toro. 
And you're going to be disappointed in this. Uh, he considered the film so bright and happy and full of light that he wasn't interested. <laughs> Which is funny because this one really less so. I mean, and, and none of them are. I mean, they all have some darkness to them, even the yeah. first two. But this one really starts to. And, and Curon really went that direction yeah, with it. Even yeah, more yeah. than I think most people expected when you read the book. Uh, yeah, but he <laughs> thought it was it was a little too a little too bright and happy for his interests. But that's a challenge. Yeah, and it's it's yeah, uh, I'm a little disappointed. But uh, Kiran did a, a good yeah, job. He did a good but job. yeah, Del Toro would have been fun. <laughs> that would have been great. Uh, J.K. Rowling was really happy that Kiran was chosen to direct because she really liked uh, Etu Mama Tambien and The Little Princess, which Kiran directed. That was the child kids movie I was talking about. He adapted The Little Princess Disney film, I believe. We're going to um, do that on here sometime. Yeah, Curran adapted that, and she was a big fan of his adaptation, huh. so she was glad that he was directing it. Uh, this is, I think a lot of people have heard this, but I think it's really interesting. Uh, his first, uh, Curran's first exercise with the main three cast, uh, Harry, Ron, and Hermione, was he had them write autobiographical essays about their characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've probably heard this. Or I, I think I have. Yeah, most people, it's a pretty famous story. Uh, written in first person from like when they were born... Uh, all the way up through like their current, mm-hmm. you know, experience and that sort of thing. And Rupert Grint didn't write his essay. <laughs> and when Curon asked him why he didn't write his essay, Rupert Grint said, I'm Ron. Ron wouldn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> and Curon said, OK, you do understand your character. <laughs> and that was <laughs> feels like a cop out. But I mean, Ron doesn't get the best grades but he still does his work yeah. he doesn't just not do it what he should have done was talked emma watson into doing it for that him. would have been the real thing <laughs> to have emma watson do it for him uh as i mentioned earlier the third film was the first one to extensively utilize real life locations uh much of the first two films were shot in studios like i said earlier uh which again gives it a lot more of a lived in real mm-hmm. sort of feel uh part of what they did when they did that is this changed the look of hagrid's hut if you notice from the difference, and I remember this thinking back on it now once I read this, that in the first two, Hagrid's hut is kind of on flat ground on the edge of the forest. Mm-hmm. Like, that's where we see yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this one, he's like at the bottom of a hill, and it's like a very hilly terrain because they built it in Scotland where they were mm-hmm. filming, and it's a much more hilly terrain where Hogwarts is set now. Um, oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Now that I'm thinking about it. It's like rugged. It's a little more rugged and there's rocks and, you know, it's a little it's just a little different. It's like a hillside and because they have to run down to his hut, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, And they added the big pumpkin patch behind his hut, which is mentioned in the second one that he's growing pumpkins for like the Halloween feast. But uh, we don't see it in the movie in the second one. Uh, onto that, they changed a lot geographically about Hogwarts in general from the first two movies. Uh, For the first time, we see the bridge. To Hogwarts, which mm-hmm. kind of plays a role in the seventh, sixth, seventh one. Yes. Uh, one yeah. of the seventh ones. Um, and we see the courtyard, which we hadn't seen yet, which is mentioned in the book several times that there's a courtyard, mm-hmm. like an outdoor courtyard area. But we see it for the first time in three, which mm-hmm. is interesting because, yeah, I remember there were several times mentioned in the first two, but we didn't see it in the first two movies. Also, you just see more of the lake and that sort of thing. And you see, I remember reading the island that Dumbledore is buried on later in the series. You actually see it in this movie for a second, Hmm. which is a real Island in Scotland in some lake, wherever they shot this. The Honeyduke set 
uh, in three is a redress of Flourish and Blots, which was a redress of Ollivander's oh. <laughs> uh, uh, wand shop. So they reused that set three times and now it's Honeydukes. Uh, originally, Curon wanted to get away from CGI and go to puppets. He wanted to do puppet Dementors specifically. What? And they did a lot of practice test footage with Dementors, puppets and stuff. Ultimately, they it, they realized it was going to be too expensive and just impractical, so they mm-hmm. went to CG. But they used a lot of the test footage that they shot with the puppets and like them underwater hmm. and stuff uh, to inform the CGI for the characters later. Interesting, interesting. Uh, this is John Williams' final Harry Potter movie, which I didn't realize. I didn't. He did the first three, and now they keep using his themes right, and stuff. Right. Obviously, they Hedwig's theme is the yeah. main theme throughout all of them. But this is the last one he scored. He scored the oh, first three, and then I didn't uh, realize. That. Yeah, I didn't either. It goes on to a different guy, but he was nominated for an Oscar. That's my final fun fact: is that the film was nominated for two Oscars, uh, best original score and best visual effects. Didn't win either, mm-hmm. but it was nominated for both. And yeah, John Williams was nominated for his score, and then he called it quits on Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we obviously still used his music in all of the later films. It's always cool when a genre film gets nominated. Mm-hmm. And that's usually what they are is those sort of technical yeah. like music and yeah. sound editing and effects and that sort of thing. Now they have the new category. Uh, oh, have you seen that? Best popular yeah. film? Uh, just, <sighs> just just, give Black Panther best movie. Just <laughs> fucking do it, you cowards. <laughs> you fucking cowards. Just give it best movie. Um, but yeah, all right. Uh, we're final section. We're gonna take the Patronus quiz and see what our Patroni are. Um, we've done our houses. Uh, I'm Ravenclaw, and I'm a Gryffindor. Uh, we haven't done our wands yet, but we'll do that on a later one. We figured Patronus made sense for this one because this is yeah. the Patronus introduction book. So, expecto Patronum. Discover us, your Patronus. I hope it gives Boom. us the same questions. I hope so too. I was thinking about that. <laughs> If it doesn't give us the same in order, we're going to be like, well, the Patronus is a kind of a positive force, a projection of the very thing that the Dementor feeds upon. Hope, happiness, the desire to survive. Remus Lupin. Well, this is a long introduction. It is a very long introduction. Discover your Patronus. You can only discover your Patronus once. Yep. The questions are timed. Go with your, go with your right. Oh, gosh, no pressure. Here we go. Think of your happiest memory. Flying through trees. Oh, do I pick one of these? I picked shine. wind. Sun, wind, rain. Oh, we have different wind. ones. Dang it. Uh-oh, I have shine, glitter, glow. I'm going to go. Oh, I didn't Ooh. get the pick. Okay. They said they were timed, babe. I wasn't. Okay. Uh, make, well, this is improve. Gonna... Make. Dream, discover, dance, discover. This is more Why? I, this, I, my stupid thing popped up. My little. Stone, wood, earth earth okay we're a little bit separate so that's good i missed my first one i hope that doesn't affect it warm cold cold i love fall and winter i'd much rather be cold than warm oh oh no oh i almost produced play prowl preen play video games give me the next question free safe free yeah we have completely different questions yeah we do Oh, and pause for a second. Black, white, gray, gray. Oh, that's my answer. <laughs> free, safe. Okay, free. I, I got the, I got that one. I think we're just in different orders. I think we yeah. ultimately get the same questions. I would imagine. Hunt, create, create. I haven't gotten that one yet. 
watch, listen, touch. Um, Instagram, I don't want to see any of your notifications right now. I could have went with watch. Yeah. Touch, drag, and release for your Patronus. Oh, you beat me. Oh, my Patronus is a buffalo. <laughs> what? <laughs> Mine is a wild rabbit. <laughs> a buffalo. That's Can pretty badass. Oh, buffalo's pretty badass. <laughs> that's like a giant badass. It's huge. Yeah, that's cool. Mine's a rabbit. A wild rabbit. A wild rabbit. All right. Well, I got a wild rabbit for my Patronus. I skipped the first question, though, on accident, so that may have influenced it. I may have had a different animal. So my Patronus is a buffalo, and yours is a wild rabbit. Yeah. Interesting. That is very interesting. (laughs) But you're smaller than me, so you need a bigger Patronus. And I'm (laughs) bigger, so I'm fine with a smaller one, (laughs) I guess. All right. Well, that was informative. That was very informative. Uh, if you take your Patronus quiz or have in the past, share it with us on our post when Katie posts our Patronus pictures. Let us know what your Patronus is on Pottermore. Uh, just so we can see if anybody else has buffalo or wild <laughs> rabbit. It's very interesting. I wonder how many total there are. Probably yeah, that's a lot. That's a good question. Probably quite a few. Yeah. I would think. Especially because I wouldn't have imagined buffalo would be one of them. Yeah, it was not expected. Because that's a very American, like, but I don't think buffalo exists in Europe, or at least not in England. I don't think so. No, you know what I mean. I wouldn't think so. Huh. Interesting. All right. Well, that was that was fun and informative, like you said. That's going to do it for the prequel to the 29th episode of this film is lit. As always, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Goodreads. We have a subreddit. Do all those things. Also, rate review us on iTunes, Stitcher, and all the other places you download this delightful podcast, if I do say so myself. And until next time, guys, gals, non-binary, everybody else, keep reading books, keep watching movies, and keep being awesome.